Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the Sustainable Development Goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoyed today's SDG Talks podcast. Hello, hello, beautiful SDG talkers. Welcome to this week's episode of SDG Talks, where I invite on Alison Lomax from the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, based in the west coast of Scotland. And the reason why I'm speaking with Alison today, several reasons. One being, of course, the amazing work that the Trust do to protect whales and dolphins in the west coast of Scotland. Um, and the, the way that they tap into citizen science and they have... Uh, whale tracking app where people can send in sightings and they can use all of this data that they've collected over the last 18 years to inform policymakers. Um, but on a more personal level, because I next year I'm planning on taking on a enormous uh, race, a swim run. So it's 200 miles of running and 20 miles of swimming and it should take me a couple of days, um, hopefully under three days. We'll wait and see. But I am doing this um, in parts to raise money for the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust so the everything that, that Alison's speaking about today that's pretty close to to my heart and I hope that you all really enjoy the conversation that we have. And we can get this podcast rolling. So thank you very much for coming on. It's great to have you on the podcast. Here with me today, although we're sitting in uh, two very different countries. Yeah. I'm over in Copenhagen, <laughs> sitting on the Isle of Mull in Scotland, which must be quite nice. Um, but, but the reason that I got you on to talk today um, was because of the work that you do with the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust in Scotland. And I think most of the people listening will know that the world's oceans are in a bit of a precarious state in many ways at the moment, uh, with global warming as a result of climate change pollution from chemicals, plastics, waste. Um, and now we have over 8 billion people on the planet, um, which means that we're also decimating these ecosystems through our food consumption. Um, now, the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust's mission is to protect whales and dolphins first and foremost. Um, and I really just want to hear from you where you see this work fitting into wider conservations for the oceans, uh, but also why whales and dolphins are so important. It's a really good place to start, actually. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for having the podcast. It's, um, it's, it's a really good place to start, I think, because for a lot of people, I think whales and dolphins are so charismatic and there's such a great connection between people and these animals that actually a lot of people that drive to protect them is, is for the animals, the individual animals sake alone. It's, it's kind of for those animals rather than necessarily consideration of the wider role they play in our oceans, but mm. they actually have a really important function. So it's kind of important for conservation to remember and to consider that uh, when we're thinking mm -hmm. about the role um, that we're playing in terms of conservation for whales and dolphins. So, I mean, I guess to go through it, uh, as well as you know, their, their individual importance as sort of sentient beings, um, they all also play a really important role in 
balancing out food webs in regulating climate and also redistributing nutrients around the oceans so you know it's top predators uh, we'd call them indicator species perhaps as well and they uh health of the population of whales and dolphins really gives us an idea of the health of the oceans so um in terms of being top predators they are helping to balance out the sort of food web that we have in the oceans they eat a lot of food but they also Mm. means they regulate animals further down the food chain to stop over animal populations over exploding so um directly they contribute to balancing out food chains which is really important but also they because of where they often feed in the ocean uh, they start to redistribute um, nutrients around mm. areas so whale poop whale poop exactly <laughs> you would be getting onto it really early on this podcast, we're I getting right in there and i love it so you know when and when whales and dolphins well whales particularly um when they feed they tend to feed at depth so they're moving nutrients from deep water as they surface to breathe, that's where they poo. Um, so they're moving that nutrient from the bottom of the ocean to the top surface, and there it can do some really, uh, really important good for our oceans. So once the whale poop is at the surface, it helps to fertilize all the phytoplankton. Phytoplankton then um, sort of absorbs carbon dioxide. It's also the base for all marine food web as well. And and actually, and uh, you know, by moving those nutrients around, they're really helping to, I would call it fertilize the oceans. Um, and phytoplankton is so important, not just for our oceans, but for everybody, uh, for life on Earth entirely. Um, I mean, it's estimated that phytoplankton is responsible and provides every second breath we take in terms of the oxygen that it produces. So it's really vital for us all. The Amazon's not the lungs of the, the Earth anymore. Phytoplankton. <laughs> they're, they're, they're both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Plankton doing its doing its the role just as well as the Amazon. So yeah, um, yeah it's a uh, it's a really important um, role they play, and and as part of you know the fertilization of of that phytoplankton and and helping that phytoplankton grow at the surface, and um, that is a, the phytoplankton that absorbs the carbon and that helps mm-hmm. with climate regulation as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a it's a really important sort of role they play in food webs and nutrient sort of redistribution but also even when they're dead they have a really important part to play uh you may have heard it referred to as whale fall but when a whale uh, generally Never heard dies, it. yeah it's really i think it's quite a nice term for uh, okay. for talking about the death of you're going to go on about <laughs> whales exploding on beaches there oh, <laughs> no <laughs> that's less pretty um but when they when they 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 die um they tend to sink so the whale carcass sinks to the bottom of the ocean it's called whale fall and basically when that happens um the 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 carbon that's stored in the animal is 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 trapped is trapped and it's stored at depth for up to thousands of years so um it actually provides a really important carbon sink as well mm-hmm. again really important for climate uh, change and tackling that as well as you know lots of animals on the seabed then uh feed on carcasses and you know use it a mini habitat as well so mm. yeah both alive and and when they die naturally at sea really important yeah. okay and and i really relate to 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 um to your point that you said before about they're very um i can't remember the exact wording you used but people are very intrigued by them and they're they're interesting creatures and they're a good almost um like ambassador for the ocean and i'm sure any measures that you work towards enacting to protect them affect other place other species and other and other animals as well at the same time um and i'm i'm quite curious to hear i mean what what kind of measures 
have you worked on trying to implement and what kind of work would you do to try and help with conservation of these animals? So there's there's a whole different range and I think it depends on um, the area that you're working in and, and the species that you're focused on. But in the, in the Hebrides, we have worked on a few different sort of projects and uh, and work with other organizations on a few projects that that you know hopefully will have a big impact so mm. um, the the first i guess way that our work contributes to kind of wider conservation measures is through the data that we collect on board our research vessel but also through the community sightings programs we run and mm -hmm. that data is all um really long term and it's it's what we'd call monitoring data and basically that allows us to detect um, whether there are important areas that um, are important for the animals uh, year after year, whether there are any changes in the numbers going up or down, it helps us to sort of detect what's happening. And what that data has allowed us to do is actually provide evidence to decision makers and to policy makers about where important areas are for these animals. And that information has actually led to the designation of um, a protected area for public purposes on the west coast. This is awesome. That's so cool. Powered by citizen science. Um, there you go. <laughs> and the uh, and also it's also helped to identify areas for uh, potential marine protected areas for uh, other species like minty whales, rizzo's dolphins, and basking sharks. So mm. um, it's it's about identifying places where these animals are kind of persistent over time. So you're seeing them regularly year after year, and it's 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 an important place for them to be either returning to or or spending a lot of time in if they're resident. So yeah, that's one of the ways that that the data I guess has been uh, used to to sort of inform protective measures. Um, but there are other um, ways that we would look to use that information and, and work with people to to sort of directly protect animals. So one of the things that we also do through our education work is training, and we work a lot with whale watch boat operators to train responsible whale watching um, behaviours and accredit skippers. And um, that's really, really important on the West Coast of Scotland because there are, um, you know, it's like a quite a new um, emerging whale watching industry. And it's really important that's done and grows in a sustainable way. Um, you know, lots of people want to get out and see these animals, and I, I, I do too. <laughs> uh, you know, the connections that you can make them is great, and it's just yeah, really, really important that um, anybody who's interacting with the animals, public or or operators, um, know exactly how to behave to create the least amount of disturbance or impact on yeah. the animals. And, and coming back to what you said about citizen science before, there's a. There's tracking as well that so if somebody was out on a whale watching tour or the company themselves, they could register that they saw X species at X location on a exactly, tracking yeah. app. Yeah, so as well as us, our, our own research vessel, uh, which we do expeditions on, we also run a community sightings project called Whale Track, and that a big, big contributors to that are the whale watch tour operators um, in the Hebrides. Um, and basically, when you're out on a whale watch vessel and it's with a company who's using Whale Track, they'll be often tracking um, the boat's location using the app that we provide. 
and that'll track where they've gone and then as soon as they see something they'll input that information and tell and, and tell us what they've seen and that is such amazing valuable data because yeah these animals travel big distances they yep. could be anywhere in the hebrides and actually having lots of people out there really knowledgeable professional people with their eyes mm. out of the water knowing exactly what they're looking at and then being able to tell us is is, is amazing so mm -hmm. yeah so really it's decentralizing the resources i guess there's there's so many people out there on a day-to-day -day basis and so many different locations around the hebrides it's, it's a perfect thing to have um and it just it reminds me of when i was in tasmania and i met the the whale watching tour operator Damo, Damo down there, and he had been doing that for 25 years. And I know it's not the Hebrides, but he he's now some sort of god within the specific some specific whale research uh, circles because he's yeah. seen everything, things that they didn't even think existed anymore. <laughs> he's seen them, exactly. which is uh, yeah. which is crazy. So it's really cool that you can tap into using you know local people and and expanding the network and yeah, really just having everyone contribute to that that process. And I, and I guess, I mean, you, you've already described a bit about it, but the, the trust has this triple pronged approach to conservation. So you've got your research, education and, and your citizen empowerment. And you'd actually mentioned a bit already um, about having having your own vessel. Um, and how how do you how do you utilize the vessel? I mean, what kind of what kind of um, research studies do you do and, and how is that also involved in the education aspect of things? Yeah, so we we do describe what we do as like a three pronged approach, and as you say, it's it's conservation or research, depending on how you want to term it, um, which is all uh, based on citizen science projects. So that's our research expeditions and whale track are all citizen science. Um, mm. The educational element of what we do is all about really just trying to engage as many people from sort of a diverse, uh, wide range of people to really be inspired to sort of care for the animals and the marine environment mm -hmm. generally. And then the community side of thing is right about making it accessible to people to participate and um, allowing, I guess, infrastructure to sort of support stewardship because there are many people, um, I think, globally that care about whales and dolphins, but particularly in the Hebrides, mm. there's so many people using the sea and working with visitors that really are just, you know, already stewards. It's just sort of helping to provide the infrastructure to allow them to contribute as much as they can um, to the protection, uh, yeah, well, to, to try to protect the animals. So that's kind of, I guess, the three pillars of what we do. But most of our projects actually, they don't just fit into one of the pillars. They kind of they 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 take on elements of all of them. So um, I guess whale track that we've already talked about is a really great example of that because it's primarily a data collection platform. We're trying to get that citizen science data and we're trying to do the research through that project. But then we've also got an ed, a, sort of an educational element to that where we train people to use it we also there's a live sightings map so people can instantly look at what they're you know what's actually about what people have seen and learn a bit about where the species are found um, and an id page to sort of learn about the animals themselves and then there's also yeah as i said as you mentioned all the work that we do with people who work, live and work here and run yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that project is a nice example of how it kind of goes across all three. Um, but I guess Silurian is the same as well. So Silurian is the name of our research vessel. Uh, although we have trained scientists on board and, and, a, and a professional crew, uh, it's actually driven by volunteers, citizen scientists that come on board and participate. So um, every data collection every sort of data collection, data point in our collection, we actually um, 
uh, kind of inputted and collected by a member of the public who's come on board. Um, our scientists are really just there to kind of validate and also train, um, you know, the people who come and join us to actually mm -hmm. do that work. So mm -hmm. there's a citizen science element to it. It comes, you know, it creates really strong, powerful data set, but also everybody who comes on that boat will learn something about being a marine sort of mammal scientist. They'll learn how to use a hydrophone. They'll learn how to take a photo identification image. They'll understand how to you know, set up a track line and uh, even sail a boat a little bit. <laughs> uh, so it's it's an educational experience as well as, as, yeah. as, a, as a science one. And, um, and, and again, that boat is going in and out of all sorts of anchorages across the west coast so you know we actually do get to see a lot of people in communities and we do get to visit a lot of places that we might not if we were just based in one office and we didn't have this lovely movable floating classroom i guess you could call it uh, a we vessel but it, you know and actually it does allow us to interact with yeah many people in the communities just by going in to different anchorages mm, and, mm, mm. and and you so you must have tens of thousands of hours of audio recording and photos and yes. videos and last... where, where's all that data gonna go <laughs> i know it's a good question so it's um it's a long-term monitoring project which means we do accumulate a lot of data and it's a full-time job managing that data and making sure it's cleaned and accessible and ready to share with people but it is huge quantities so oh, i think it's six thousand hours of continuous recordings was the last estimate we did but that was about four four years ago that we did that calculation we're actually just re looking at the acoustic data anyway so the acoustic okay. data is probably the, the the largest in terms of size that you would need to manage but yeah there are mm. millions of data points uh, that show our track lines and you know thousands of sightings so it's a lot of information to manage um, at the moment, uh, we keep that in various different kind of formats, and we're actually doing a project at the moment looking at how we can most securely host all of that information in the future as well as it grows, because every year we're out there collecting data, every year we have amazing citizen scientists contributing to whale track, every year people send us photographs of the animals we see, uh, we've got to host and you know, look after that information so that mm -hmm. it's useful. So it's a big job. And is this, and, and do you get external parties and researchers that come to you and want to find out if they can access the data? Um, yeah. And or how do you convert that data into to, into usable um, pieces of information? What are the sort of ways that you disseminate or communicate that? Yeah, so a bit of a bit of all of that actually. So we 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 kind of analyze data layers or analyze and provide data layers for certain projects so some some researchers or some people who want to access the data may just want to sort of have a uh, an analyzed layer that that shows and visualizes the data set that's there um, some people who are doing maybe wider research projects that are looking at multiple data types multiple data sources will want raw data where they can then uh, combine that with other data sets to look at maybe much larger areas. Uh, that's been done quite a lot in the past as well. So it, it completely depends on the project, but we get a lot of different data requests from researchers, at academic institutions, from um, government agencies who are looking at things like marine protected areas and are calling for evidence and data to look at where might be important. Um, and also we then do our own research publications as well. So we we keep a keep a catalogue of animals 
for certain species. So we keep a catalogue of individual animals that we know. Mm -hmm. And we also kind of publish every so often updates to um, the distribution maps that we we create with the data. So, and all of the whale track data is kind of already available online because that is, you know, as people send in that sighting, it is hosted in the cloud. So it immediately is up uploaded onto a map. So anyone can immediately see visible. Yeah. Cool. And I'll make sure to link that in the in in the podcast below and also the. Um, the sort of reports that you just mentioned there, I remember going through a sort of online PDF book that was very slick and it had lots of different visuals and, you know, sort of GIS maps putting things together and pinpointing where things have been cited. So I, I thought that was really slick. Um, uh, to kind of come back to um, the marine protection zone point, uh, how do you see um, the sort of clash between this conservation effort and setting up marine protection zones and the other industries which are quite important to Scotland or the sort of use of the of the bioeconomy and so fishing and, and other industries that might clash with conservation efforts. Um, how is that mitigated? And yeah, I'll leave it open to you. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And it's important to consider being a regional charity based on the west coast of Scotland, we um, are based in coastal communities and, and really aware of the various economic importance and, and I guess community importance of lots of different industries. And I think the answer to that from my, for me would be that the data is the way that you, you data and species monitoring is the way that you best understand where is important, you know, what kind of protective measures that you might need and, and how best to set those up so that they are most effective um, mm. and, and therefore, you know, hopefully clash least with other industries. Now, there's always going to be a kind of bit of a balance to that. Um, and I think that's important that everybody recognises that. And it's about, I think, appropriate and effective management of those areas. So if an area has been identified through really sound science, really important, you know, really good data, that it's a really important area for animals and we know why it's important and we know what those animals are doing in those areas, mm -hmm. then that will help to inform what kind of management is needed of any other industries um, to make sure that, you know, that that protection is is beneficial for the animals. So it's really about um, appropriate management, but also consultation with the public as well. So, mm. you know, it's it's really important that that all of this is done in a really collaborative and, and mm. a way that there's a lot of public consultation with all stakeholders that use yeah. the marine environment. Yeah, totally. And I think that's a really, really good approach because it's easy to just come in with one solution that's not necessarily beneficial for, for everyone or the optimal the optimal way of doing things. And in, in line with the sort of collaboration point that you, you mentioned, do you um, collaborate with many other charities that could be also locally or, or on, a, on a larger national scale? Yeah, we do actually. It's a really, there's a really great charity that, um, I don't know if you've heard of before, that we are a member of called Scottish Environment Link. It's, a, it's basically an umbrella body in a way for environmental charities who want to collaborate on policy work or advocacy work, uh, research at times. And it's a kind of, it's basically a, a charity that's trying to give Scotland's environmental sector a really like powerful and loud voice to make sure mm. that you know, it's it's heard when decisions are being made. And we are a member of Scottish Environment Link, um, which for a small charity is really important because it means that um, our information that we collect, that the um, the knowledge that we 
developed and, 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 and kind of gained through our project is then able to feed into that wider policy discussion. So we're a small team. We don't have huge numbers of, of people. So actually yeah. making sure that that information is, is also uh, available to others through something like Scottish Environment Link is, is really valuable to us. Um, and it's a place basically where uh, lots of different organisations that are members. So you've got big national uh, NGOs as well as small charities like HWDT. They will come sort of collate and combine information to either provide evidence to decision makers if evidence is being called for for a particular um you know management proposal or yeah. also to respond to public consultations for things like mpas so that actually you know you've got a, a kind of combined voice if you're yeah. advocating for a particular particular thing so it's a really great part, place to be part of but also in terms of um, outside of that group, outside of that organisation, HWDT also do a lot of work collaborating with researchers from academic institutions and other charities that do similar work to us. So yeah. a few organisations in Scotland who collect really great citizen science data and that all goes into a national database run by a charity called the Sea-Watch Foundation. And so everything that we collect through Whale Track, for example, all that citizen science information that goes into the Sea Watch Foundation's national UK-wide database, so that it's uh, readily accessible and can be seen across, you know, other areas of the UK as well. Mm -hmm. so, so, is there? Can you see an almost a whale tracker version of the UK? Is there other regions that have similar schemes? So it's um it, each. I think each area and each charity does things slightly differently, uh, yeah. but and might call them different things. But most places there will be somewhere where there's like a really great biolog biological recording project like whale trap yeah. whether it's got an app or not I'm, you know it would depend on the area but uh, it's yeah there's usually somewhere where you can submit sightings and, and provide that information across the uk so it's great that that's then combined into one national database so that yeah, totally. it's accessible to other people totally totally this is um this this all of this work must um of course, require uh, a vehicle for for fundraising and for for raising donations. And how do you work outside of the charity? How do you engage with potential fundraisers or uh, individuals? And how how does that model work for the charity? So, as a as a small charity, we actually tend to work kind of quite one on one with yeah. uh, donors who want to support us through the uh, doing something that's to raise funds for us. Uh, we usually have actually quite a personal conversation with people um, because we're small, we can actually do that, which is really nice. <laughs> um, it's not so easy when you're a much larger organization. Green it's very hard, yeah. yeah. And I think, um, so we do we do kind of work one-on-one -on -one with anybody who's looking to fundraise. We've had people climb Ben Nevis for us. Um, you know, we've had, at the moment, there's this wonderful woman who's uh, decided to do, I think it's 3,000 push-ups in 30 days to sort of raise money oh. for us. <laughs> Really cool. Really cool. Um, which is really lovely when people want to yeah to support us through fundraising but in something i really really hope i can also contribute to with, yeah, well, uh, with my race i'm <laughs> yeah, really looking forward to your race and that's the first time we would have done anything or worked with anybody on that kind of thing so again it's a lot of the time it's about yeah uh, working with with people and supporting what, what we can um so mm. you know to to engage people who are look, looking to support our work so in terms of other fundraising, 
one of the biggest ways that we actually raise funds for our research project is through people coming on board Silurian. So the citizen scientists that join us on board, they pay a participation fee, which covers, you know, the training, their food and board on and, and cabin on board the vessel whilst they're on there. And actually, in terms of, you know, supporting our work, that is um, is the way that we fund that research project. So and, it, and it's the way that we've been able to fund it for it to be such a long term research project. So mm -hmm. that it's not reliant on project grants entirely. I mean, we do have mm -hmm. some project grants that support it too. But actually, it's it, it's coming from the participants themselves that are engaging in the experience, also helping to fund it. And it's proved a really great way to to do that for now, I think it's 18 years. So yeah, well, it's a long time. So with each each research trip that you might go out on the Silurian over the course of the summer, how many or how many citizen science scientists might you get on board or per trip how many scientists might you get on board so we have six on most trips yeah okay. so six is our maximum capacity so there is not a huge vessel but she's 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 got but she's seaworthy she can handle the mint oh, she is a solid boat yeah no she's perfect for what we're doing she's uh she's been adapted so she's got a crow's nest for observation and okay. she's got yeah like uh all of the scientific equipment and hydrophone on board but uh yeah she she can only take six six volunteers and our four crew so okay. um, and then the six volunteers covers the costs of operating the boat and the crew and everything else yeah, yeah. awesome so yeah and, and um you mentioned the crow's nest and this is this is something i i only really actually knew recently about the orchid populations that we had in in scotland you know in the shetlands but also in, in the outer hebrides and and i was curious to to hear from you what the craziest thing if you'd ever been up in the crow's nest what the craziest thing you you've seen while you've been out on one of these trips and maybe it is just you know seeing a unique whale or it's a huge line of main jellyfish that's about 15 meters long <laughs> oh man so i'll be honest here i have never been up the crowd okay. Okay. <laughs> i might be the only member of staff that hasn't um, and i probably should have said it out loud because i'll probably be forced up there now but i'm a little bit afraid of the pipes so i've never actually gone up there um but the there's some i, I actually think some of the some of the best sightings i've had on silurian have been um but more behavior related rather than what they were yeah. so yeah. um my most of my my career has previously been um in on the east coast which is spectacular love the east coast of the uk love the north sea but it is a very very different uh, environment oh, yeah. than the hebrides and the diff diversity that you get in the hebrides is spectacular and the way that the animals behave as well in my experience has been quite special so probably the most memorable encounter I've had was with a minke whale that came up and associated with Silurian so actually approached the boat and was swimming kind of underneath it and around it and alongside it and it was so wow. so incredibly close you know we had engines yeah. off we were taking photo ID pictures but it was showing its you know its, its belly it was kind of looking at you and yeah okay big eye gosh. big beady eye exactly <laughs> a large way to do that it yeah, was something really i'd never special. seen before and we do get it quite a lot here I, and i think it's a little bit uh kind of unusual to have i mean they do associate with boats and you do see that in other places but the amount mm -hmm. of association we get is quite special here on mm -hmm. the west coast um and i'm not entirely sure where that would be but some of the other things that i've seen that i've loved have actually been you know seabirds there's some 
some great seabirds. Yeah, I was actually wondering. Yeah. So if, you, if you've been out to St Kilda Way, which is for anyone listening very, very, very far away from, from mainland Scotland, <laughs> so I think so someone might have swam there. There might have been a relay team that swam there or swam back or something, oh but it was <laughs> still far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so Lorraine has been there. Some of our crew have. I haven't. Um, yeah. But yeah, we get to the Shants regularly and some other really great places uh, that are really good for seabirds. But I, I really love it when you see seabirds at sea um, and mm. one of my favourite sightings, and I think it was because we had a great picture of it that I remember the sighting itself, but the photograph we took, uh, it makes, makes me smile every time I look at it, was a, um, a fulmar eating a jellyfish and it was basically sat on the calmest water I've ever seen. It was, you know, the whole sea was just mirror calm and mm. this fulmar was sat there, and I love fulmars at the best of time. But it was sat there and it was it was eating a jellyfish on the surface of the water and um and, and we, as we were going past and we're taking pictures of it uh it's it sort of like shouted at us it squawked at us i'm not quite sure what we should use for my it made a noise it shouted at us and the picture is absolutely brilliant because it really looks like it's going like get away from me i'm eating my dinner and it was just such a nice little moment with a very oh, i'd really i'd really like to see that photo that is that is news to my ears because until now i thought it was only turtles that ate jellyfish <laughs> turtles were the saviors but this yeah. is great i need to uh, what is the name of the bird a fulmar Fulmer. Yeah, okay. they're really fantastic birds, seabirds. Because yeah, when you when you're sw when you're swimming, I've had several jellyfish in the face now, um, <laughs> and they're just I'm so scared of them. I, d I don't know what it is when you're swimming. You look you look directly down, so you don't really look at what's in front of you, right? Until it's yeah. too late. Yeah. And there's something about the sudden like loss of vision that just always makes you terrified. And then obviously the sting as well. It's just like ah. yeah. So. Uh, I think it's it's great to hear about something that's munching away at them, that's <laughs> eroding the uh, <laughs> eroding the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I was in Indonesia and I went for um I went around these cliffs on the northern side of one of the isles. So it's out out at this sort of open ocean end, and there was huge waves smashing up against this cliff face. And I wanted to swim around. Um, it was probably only like a kilometer and a half, but I'd been travelling for a bit, so it was pretty weak. And I swam out, and when I got to the point, there must have been something to do with the waves and the swell and the currents but there was it was just a sea it was just a soup of jellyfish and i remember going through it and i was just trudging these jellyfish and I, this this is horrible and i saw this huge turtle like two meters long at the bottom of the ocean and i was quite scared at this point as well i thought am i actually going to make it am i going to get around this cliffside and it just gave me such relief and i was like I, knowing that that was there and that it was eating jellyfish and <laughs> this experience suddenly felt a lot less scary and I got, I got through and man managed to make it to the shore. But ever since then, I've just always thought turtles and now fulmers are inc incredibly amazing animals. Yeah, um, they're your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Friend, not foe. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering, I mean, the it sounds like from everything you've said that there's a lot of opportunity for people out there who want to contribute to protecting the oceans and specifically helping out with whale and dolphin conversation. Yeah, convers conservation um that um you know citizen science there's, there's opportunities for them to, to do things but i'm also wondering if you had anything you'd like to share on what you think someone out there who's just listening could maybe adopt in their daily life or any habits that you think would be um of value to to the work that that you care so much about and the work, the work that the trust does i mean there's so many things i think that are small that everybody can can try and fit into their daily sort of routine that would that would support 
you know, wider kind of than marine, but also sort of marine conservation. I mean, for me, I think the biggest and most powerful thing that you can do is 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 to be informed and engaged in what's happening in your local area when it comes to things like um, the, the the decisions that are being made that affect the management of the local environment. Um, mm. I know that's not quite what you asked, but I think it is, and I'll, I'll maybe suggest some other things as well, but I think it is mm. really important to be aware of what's happening, um, what consultations are coming up and, you know, signing petitions yeah. is great and it does yeah. um, show a, a kind of public interest in the topic, but actually responding to a consultation directly, responding and telling the decision makers what you think should happen, um, mm. you know, how you mm. think that the, your local marine area, you know, should be managed to, for protection is a really really important thing because again it's about that consultation it's about getting people's views and engaging mm -hmm. as many stakeholders as you can so i would certainly say that that's a mm. really important step to take if you yeah. need to you know support protection but in terms of you know in your daily life uh, there's there's some you know wonderful switches that you can make that really don't make a big kind of impact, or at least they haven't for me on my mm. sort of day to day life you know switching from uh, plastic packaging to you know either no packaging or cardboard packaging for some of your daily items you know mm -hmm. i do that for most of my personal kind of uh, care uh, products mm -hmm. um, we also at hwdt we run a refill station um, at mm. our center so we have a center in tobermory that does lots of engagement activities and education but we also have a little eco shop in there and we, we have refill uh, station for um eco-friendly cleaning products so that people can just bring their bottles and refill them and that I think if you've got a place that you can do that or even if you can you know potentially uh, buy in bulk and share with a group of you uh, mm. actually refilling mm -hmm. your old containers is a really important thing anything that I guess is reducing plastic consumption and switching to a kind of eco-friendly yeah. sort of 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 doing what we all need totally. to do, just keep ourselves and our houses tidy. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't always as easy as, yeah. uh, as we hope it to be. But also, I think an important point, you, you know, you mentioning the, the public consultations is almost this kind of like a political step in some ways. And it, with plastics, you can make personal decisions, but also I'm sure there's sort of political level things that you can do the way that you vote and the way that you respond to uh, or sign up to. Um, Those to kind of petitions and consultations of just really trying to be aware of the ones that are like most meaningful, I guess, to you and your local area, because some of them will be nationwide. And that is really important. It's really important to engage our national uh, legislation or national policies, but also some are very, very specific. So, you know, um, would would affect the, the waters where you potentially live if you're living in a coastal area or waters mm. that you maybe visit often and really care about. So I think it's, yeah, it's being aware of that. And one of the, the best ways to kind of keep informed, because it's a lot to keep informed of, is to join either a local charity or a local group. So there's lots of really great local community groups that um, you know are kind of great networks for if you are looking to make steps or support action to protect the marine environment or the wider environment and nature generally some of those local groups and there's probably one in every area I just wouldn't know them all yeah. uh, yeah. are really great to sort of tap into a wider network of people who maybe do know what's going on or if you know what's going on helping you tap that information into new people so I think those community groups are a really great way of sharing information and, and and bringing people together who have shared interests. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's a great way to go about things. And actually, something just popped into my mind is sort of one last note. Um, 
coronavirus has shut down a lot of marine activity and traffic. And I've seen that the Trust are trying to raise some money to send out a vessel um, because now that they're allowed to actually have people together on a boat, that this would be a really cool time to go and do that kind of work. Yeah. Would you would you want to say a few words about the sort of potential benefits of doing something now um, and, and what your plan is? Sure. So we we are asking for members of the public to support us in a couple of different ways in terms of trying to get a better idea of what what impact, if any, lockdown has maybe had on our local marine environment. So because we've got such a long term data set, if we are out there collecting information now, um, mm. we'd have a much better idea of past and present and then hopefully future as we're still able to deliver our project if this year is in any way different. So an anomaly, yeah. Anomaly, exactly. Um, I mean, so we've asked for the public to support us either through supporting our crowdfunding campaign to help us get our boat back out onto the water. Um, as I said earlier, our, our surveys are funded by participants and we actually can't have participants on the boat this year because of coronavirus restrictions in Scotland. Social distancing is just not possible to do on board a boat like Silurian and keep everyone safe. So we can go out with our small crew, but we, we can't have a boat full of people, unfortunately, this time, which is really devastating for us because it's the kind of crux of what we do but um we yeah so we're, we're asking for donations but also we're asking for people who live on the west coast or visiting the west coast to submit sightings because again our whale track citizen science project and um, our community sightings has also been going for over 20 years and um has a really good gives a really good understanding of what's going on and might also give us an idea of if there are sort of anomalies happening if, if there are much larger numbers or much fewer numbers we might be able to get some insight from public sightings as well um, yeah, totally i think that's a great a great point and i'll make sure to link that below as well for anyone out there read, uh, reading listening who's interested <laughs> in in, uh, in helping out and contributing to the work that you're doing but i just wanted to say thank you so much for having this chat with me this evening it was really nice to hear more about what the trust's doing and all these different components um, and you know you even managed to get in the whale poop chat at the start which was nice <laughs> but, got um, whale poop. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed yourself I have, um, it's really nice, thank you Thanks for listening to the STG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow STG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash and United Nations community. The goal of STG Talks is to bring you value. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on STG Talks.